Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, March 31st. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Megan Oftermat. And here are this week's feature stories. Rikers Island has been home to one of New York's most notorious prisons for nearly a century. So for this month's installment of Fordham Conversations, WFUV's David Escobar sat down with Professor Brandon Lamson about his new book, Caged, which shares a teacher's perspective from inside Rikers. There's a lot of humanity in Rikers. There's a lot of beauty in the lives that are being lived there. And there's tremendous violence and suffering that doesn't need to be perpetrated. That was Brandon Lamson, an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin, who just released his new memoir, Caged. In the book, Professor Lamson discusses his experience teaching English to incarcerated New Yorkers at Rikers Island in the late 1990s as part of the court-mandated Horizon program. And when we sat down earlier this month, Professor Lamson told me that teaching people inside Rikers taught him a lot about the world both inside and outside of a prison cell. I think one thing that really struck me was uh, that most of my students were incarcerated for drug charges. And so their education had been interrupted. Because the school was voluntary, they chose to come down to school. They were really hungry to take advantage of that opportunity because they, many of them you know, were in this strange situation where they hadn't been sentenced yet. There was a young man who was, well, he told me in class one day that he was gonna take my wallet. He was gonna steal my wallet. I said, you know, of course, no, I don't think that's gonna happen. And um, I was really aware, you know, my wallet was in the front pocket of my jeans and I was really aware of where this student was throughout the class period. The class was about to end and I felt like, okay, I obviously won this round in some way. And then he came up to me and he handed me my wallet. And and he later told me that he grew up uh, basically on the streets of New York and had to learn how to pick pockets in order to survive. But, you know, that that's just illustrative of, you know, this, this notion that the students also were, you know, very grounded in their reality outside of Rikers. You know, they hadn't acclimated yet to, to being incarcerated in many cases. I think another interesting thing that you talk about is this idea of kind of how education can be a force for control, especially within a place like Rikers. I mean, can you just talk a little bit more about that? Like how this idea of education is something that can be used for control. I just, I'm curious about your thoughts. I came into that environment with a very open mind and with no experience previously in being in prison or in working in prison. I was very idealistic, but I was always aware that it was bounded by the institutional structures of Rikers and that the guards were very much in charge. When you get to Rikers and you're a teacher, like, I'm curious, how did these men, how did these incarcerated men teach you? What did they teach you about, I mean, maybe being a prisoner, but also being a better human? They showed me, first of all, I was always very cognizant and very aware that I was not a prisoner, that I was a civilian coming in and that I had a lot of privilege. I was there because they were um, allowing and inviting me to be in that space with them and to work with them. And uh, what really um, encouraged me when I was writing this book to persevere was this idea that I was writing it as a gift to the students and to, you know, by extension, all the young people who are incarcerated um, and trying to bring that um, to light 
this need to look at people in that position differently. What do you hope people take away from Rikers, like the situation at Rikers from this book, but then also your life? Yeah, that's something I was really aware of when I was putting the book together, was that I wanted to show this idea of cages. And so I really wanted to talk about the ways in which the social and political cages touch against or press against the psychological and emotional cages and how they're interconnected. What I would hope readers would take about Rikers is that um, there's a lot of humanity in Rikers. There's a lot of beauty in the lives that are being lived there. And there's tremendous violence and suffering that doesn't need to be perpetrated. That was WFUV's David Escobar talking with Professor Brandon Lampson about his new book, Caged. Fordham Conversations enlists the help of the university community to tell stories about our world. In February, the CDC released a new report about teens and mental health. The data revealed that 60% of teenage girls surveyed nationwide had experienced persistent feelings of sadness in 2021. And teen girls in New York City are no exception. In honor of both Women's History Month and Social Work Appreciation Month, my co-host Megan Oftermat talked to two social workers on the front lines helping New York's teen girls. It varies, but a lot of the kids we see, particularly girls, are struggling with relationships, social skills. There's sometimes family dynamics that need to be worked out. That's Katie Rodriguez. She's a therapist and facilitator for the JCCA, formerly known as the Jewish Child Care Association. The JCCA is a 200-year-old agency that helps vulnerable children in New York in the form of foster care, residential facilities, education, and support. A lot of the work we do is, again, providing that education and information around what to expect. Adolescence is a delicate time, right? And it's a lot of rapid development. And for girls, that period of time can be particularly intense. So it's a lot of things happening with these young girls at a very fast pace. We want to normalize that, like, hey, this is adolescence. Like, it's going to get weird. So we want to provide supports through that as well. Beauty Garcia Whitfield is also working alongside Katie to support teen girls in New York. She's the director of Westchester Campus Clinical Services for the JCCA. She says that being a teenager was already pretty tough, but recently... It got harder. Now we've entered a digital age really rapidly and teen depression actually doubled from the year of 2010 to the year of 2019. And if we see what's changed between 2010 and 2019, what's happened is because we're so connected digitally, we've disconnected interpersonally. Girls especially struggle in a world where so many of our social interactions take place online. Girls need to be a part of a community. And that is where you've seen the numbers shift and, and the trending when it comes to, to their mental health because you're losing some of that if you are just involved in a group chat. But the digital age isn't all bad. It also provides teens with access to information they may not have had otherwise. They are more cognizant to understand that they are feeling overwhelmed, underwhelmed, sadness, feeling anxious, feeling um, intense pressure, they're able to kind of describe now 
symptoms of what they're feeling as opposed to before when there was more silence about it. Even with increased access and awareness, teenagers are still struggling. And for some communities, especially in New York, the challenges are particularly difficult to overcome. Girls and the Black and Brown community. That, that is the group that is being hit hard for so many different reasons. Beauty says a lot of it has to do with cultural expectations. A lot of work has been done to destigmatize mental health, destigmatize um, having conversations with regards to sex. Um, these communities are the ones that we are seeing a shift and change, but they're also being hit hard in the inner city. And Katie agrees. There are still stigmas surrounding some of the most important topics that teenagers need to be talking about. We're not talking about sex. We're not talking about mental health or mental illness for that matter, right? So for a teenager to be struggling with something, um, the question is, why don't they feel they can share these things? Or if, do you have anyone you can? So I think uh, a lot of that is really like normalizing the conversation, which in some platforms we are, but we could, we could do better. The city also provides other challenges for teen girls, things that might not be as common in other parts of the country. It's the inner city, and so you are seeing issues with poverty, issues with um, school-to-parent connectedness, issues with socialization. Teens need social skills development, so having community resources where they can build upon their social skills. The JCCA is working every day to try and provide teenagers with these skills. And for girls, sometimes the most valuable thing is just having somebody to turn to. Mentoring is super important, especially for, for girls. When, when you look at their hierarchy of needs, friendships and, and, co and community is important. When we are able to connect and partner with an adolescent, we are able to guide them. With that mentorship comes a message, and beauties is essential listening. I would tell the younger version of me that community is important. You are not alone and that you will be okay. You are loved, you are valuable, and you are important. And most importantly, you matter. Both Katie and Beauty expressed how unsurprising the recently released CDC data is, but that it's important to reckon with how many adolescents are struggling. At least for now, the conversation about teen girls and mental health is a little bit louder, both around the country and here in New York. With WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermat. If you want to learn more about the work that the JCCA is doing to support teens in New York, visit jccany.org. In honor of Women's History Month, WFUV will be featuring a series of stories that explore complex women's health issues. In part two of this two-part series on women in New York City with HIV and AIDS, WFUV's Leah Mallory speaks with Dr. Stella Safo, a New York-based HIV and AIDS physician, and Jackie Kilmer, the CEO of Harlem United, an organization that provides HIV medical services to underserved communities in New York. Last week, in part one of this series, I interviewed Ingrid Floyd and Lucille Grant from the Iris House to learn more about the services they offer to women affected by HIV and why they are needed. Today, in the second part of this two-part series about the impact of HIV on women, 
I explore some of the available prevention and treatment services to understand how HIV has become a manageable chronic condition. Dr. Stella Safo is an HIV primary care physician in the city who works with hundreds of HIV patients. She explains how the treatment options have evolved. It used to be a daily pill. That pill had some side effects. There's a new pill that's even better. And now, instead of a pill, there are um, injections that you can get. You can get every couple of months that will prevent you from getting HIV even if you're exposed. The pill Dr. Sefo is talking about is called pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP. This is just one of the treatment options around today to help people with HIV. But Dr. Sefo explains that many patients prefer injectables. People love the idea of the injectables because they can come in, get the injection, not have to have any other signs that they're taking any medications. So, you know, I think it plays in lots of different ways across the treatment and the prevention pathways. Although there are many more treatment options available today, Dr. Safo says her major concern is the patients that don't seek treatment. So patients that come in pretty regularly, HIV is a disease that still requires you to come in every four to six months or at least once a year. And so it's the patients who haven't yet been diagnosed or who've been diagnosed and are not engaged in care that I really worry about because HIV is a progressive disease. So if you don't treat it, you will most likely die of it. Safo says there are several obstacles that keep people from seeking and receiving care. I think that people are nervous to be seen as worrying about HIV sometimes. And so they don't even get to ask about things like, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I think the stigma and maybe like the assumptions that are made affect providers' willingness to bring up, you know, you as a woman, maybe you should be on PrEP, right? People are afraid that they may insult someone when they offer it, when in reality it should be offered to more people. She says one of the largest obstacles is how HIV has been represented historically. The story of HIV is one that's told from the perspective of men and the face that people kind of think of for HIV in the 80s is really white men. And that has meant that it has really obscured and obfuscated the reality that women are really deeply impacted. Safo explains that even research tends to neglect how women are impacted by HIV. Considering global HIV rates, we're actually spreading the fastest in heterosexual relationships. The research tends to focus on men, men who have sex with men. The advertisements tend to focus on that population as well. So women, some women feel like they are actually less at risk. So women are going into the healthcare center and not being offered pre-exposure prophylaxis when they may actually be at risk. Dr. Safo says that addressing stereotypes about HIV can only be changed by talking about it. There is a tremendous amount of work that I think has to happen for women certainly for certain historically marginalized groups like Black women, Latinx women, to really be able to address some of the special issues around access, around stigma. Dr. Safo explains that a way to do this is to have trusted figures in communities to debunk the myths surrounding HIV. Seeing the face of people with HIV reflected back to you that look like you and seeing them living their full lives. It shouldn't just be public health people and doctors talking about this stuff. It should be trusted messengers within the community. Particularly to reach women, I think you have to really think about where are women congregating and who do they listen to? They listen to their grandmothers, their mothers, their friends. And how do we get that message to those individuals so that they can spread it? And among those trusted messengers are local organizations and nonprofits. Harlem United Community Aid Center brings healthcare, housing, harm reduction, and supportive services to vulnerable populations in New York. 
particularly those affected by HIV and AIDS. CEO Jackie Kilmer says that it's critically important that organizations like Harlem United exist to provide care for these vulnerable individuals. Because we are on the ground in the community, we are the ones who are going to have the most effective impact on building trust and building relationships with people in the community, including women in the community, you know, to bring them in, to get them in access to care um, and get them, retain them in care. Kilmer says that they use every opportunity to raise awareness about how women can be affected by HIV. They need to be tested for HIV. We need to make sure that women understand that using condoms is really one of the most effective ways to prevent HIV transmission. She says quality health care is also crucial in securing effective treatment. I think on the policy side, it's again, it's increasing access to, to health care, improving education about HIV and AIDS, and also, you know, also addressing all of the social and the economic impacts that really create uh, or, or, or contribute to HIV and AIDS and contribute to the disparities we see between women and, and men. And Dr. Sefo agrees, adding that the healthcare system is difficult to navigate. Calling to make appointments, some patients are waiting for 10 minutes just to talk to someone to make an appointment. It is difficult for some patients to navigate the electronic medical record to be able to talk to me, to get medications when they need it. So what are some of the things that the health system is doing that makes it difficult to be able to actually get patients to engage to get the care that they need? Dr. Sefo says that a way to improve the healthcare system is by making HIV testing more readily available. Well, I think we need to make it easier, more permissible and acceptable for people to go ahead and get tested. So if you think about COVID testing, we make COVID testing available to everyone in their homes and they could do it. We need a similar frame to make testing available and easy in that way for HIV. Every day, there are people newly diagnosed with HIV. And every day, the work continues towards eradicating this disease for good. Ingrid Floyd, and Lucille Grant of the Iris House, Jackie Kilmer from Harlem United, and physician Dr. Stella Sefo have shown us through their efforts that HIV is indeed conquerable. And that for women with HIV, your struggle, your voice, and your humanity is acknowledged in the battle towards complete eradication of this virus. With WFUV News, I'm Leah Mallory. That was WFUV's Leah Mallory talking with Dr. Stella Sappho and Jackie Kilmer about the medical needs of women in New York City with HIV and AIDS. If you missed part one of this series, you can find it at WFUVnews.org. Bella Abzug was a revolutionary feminist, congresswoman, advocate, mother, and Bronx native. Today is the 25th anniversary of her death, but even today, her legacy lives on. Her daughter, Liz Abzug, is the founder of the Bella Abzug Leadership Institute. The organization uplifts the next generation of young women across the five boroughs. WFUV's Caroline Ely has more. When it comes to role models, Bella Abzug is a staple for young women. Nicknamed Battling Bella, she was a lawyer, social activist, and leading feminist of the 1970s. People need change. No congressional seat belongs to anyone. It belongs only to the people. 
she pioneered legislation that served as the catalyst for women's rights that we still benefit from today. Which made a single woman or a woman who was divorced have the ability to apply for a credit card in her own name or a mortgage where previously, if you were single or you were divorced, you could not. That's Liz Abzug. She's Bella's daughter. She's talking about the Fair Consumer Credit Act, which gave women the ability to manage their own finances. Her mother, Bella, spearheaded that legislation. She's also credited with creating the Ms. Bill. She was the one who put that in that said, let's refer to women as MS instead of Mrs. MRS. So there's no assumptions being made that a woman is married. Liz runs the Bella Abzug Leadership Institute, also known as Bali. That's a nonprofit that fosters leadership skills for young women across the five boroughs through speech, advocacy, and debate training. Bringing skills, the abilities, the homework that she did to gain those skills so that women could be the head of the pack. Born and raised in the Bronx, Bella was an integral figure in New York. She was a New York congresswoman and even a mayoral candidate. Bella led by example for generations of young women. Many of these young women have been able to follow in her footsteps through her daughter's foundation. The vision of Bella was to make things better, to break down discrimination, to fight against injustice, and to make it an equal world, an equal playing field for women and men. For young women who have attended Bali, the training they receive results in tangible success after they graduate from the program. I've always sort of considered myself an activist, but I think Bali really taught me the true meaning of what activism is, and it helped me find my own voice. And I really carried those skills into my journey beyond Bali. That was Samia Grover, an alumni of the 2017 Bali class. She now mentors current students in the program. Samia also received a scholarship from the Bali Board of Directors this year, which has allowed her to continue pursuing a political science degree from Fordham University. It's definitely been very empowering to have a scholarship that really carries Bella's name and legacy because I feel like I serve as a sort of representation in a way of all of the teachings we learned at Bali, and I truly hope to carry those forward. Liz hopes that all young women who go through this program feel this way and use what they learn at Bali to work on what she calls unfinished business. We still have a lot to get done, and history repeats itself. She's talking about the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade last year. She says it's a cautionary tale for young women everywhere to stay vigilant about their rights. Both Samia and Liz agree. Women are stronger when they work together, something that battling Bella would have firmly agreed with. That's why Liz mentors Samia, and Samia mentors other students at the Institute. It's a true testament to Bella's lasting legacy, and how she continues to inspire women in New York to this day. With WFUV News, I'm Caroline Ely. To donate or read more about the Bella Abzug Leadership Institute's mission to honor Bella's legacy, visit abzuginstitute.org. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the FUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from WFUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Megan Oftermat. And I'm Jay Doherty.